Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, where we're discussing critical care and its pharmacotherapy in a fun and entertaining manner. Each episode, we summarize the available evidence, discuss controversial issues, and provide practical take-home points with a subject matter expert. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, quick word from our sponsor before we get started today. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. I think everyone has had their lives turned upside down, either personally, professionally, or both over the last few days to weeks due to the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus. And normally, I'd like to talk about some upcoming things, um, things we have in the pipeline kind of in the beginning of the episode, but I'm going to kind of save some some commentary and things for, for after our interview um, because we are joined today by a special guest and a friend of the pod, Andrew Barnes, talking about his experience with COVID-19. Now, Andrew Barnes is the current director of the PGY2 Critical Care Residency at the University of Washington. He received his PharmD from the University of Washington and also completed a PGY2 in critical care at the Medical University of South Carolina, MUSC. His current practice location within the University of Washington is in the Oncology Bone Marrow Transplant ICU, and he is taking time out of his probably chaotic schedule um, to talk to all of us uh, about you know his kind of personal experience with everything that's happening with this. So Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Uh, doing okay. Doing okay so far. Now, Just how, trying to survive our, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Um, I was going to say, how long have you, have you lived in Seattle? So I am um, born and raised. In fact, I ended up buying a house probably like six blocks from where I grew up, but uh, went to school at University of Washington. And then the first real trip out of the state was uh, when I did my PGY2 in, in Charleston. Uh, after that, I, I moved quickly out of the Southeast and uh, back to the Northwest. And I worked in Portland, Oregon for a couple of years at a, at a uh, private hospital down there, Good Samaritan, uh, before taking a, coming back to the University of Washington. I did uh, cardiothoracic surgery for many years. Uh, on our department and then uh so i've been well i'm 51 here so pretty much most of my life have you ever seen the roads or city this empty well to be honest it's kind of crazy because seattle back when i remember it 
you know, way back in the day, wasn't very busy before we had Boeing, but then Microsoft and then Amazon. And so now normally traffic is gridlocked, but now even with the little bridge that I used to get out of town shut down, which was happened last night, um, it's a little bit more traffic, but I think that's probably because there's limited ways for me to get from where I live to work. But on the uh, main roads itself, everything is shut down. The governor last night uh, pretty much issued a stay-at-home proclamation that starts tomorrow uh, for most most uh, services. And so the stay-at-home kind of proclamation is kind of on top of everything else that they've been doing in the city, right, with the schools closing, right. limiting gathering, and all those types of things. So, yeah, yeah. Pretty much everything is shut down. You can uh, they they have a pretty long list of essential services. Obviously, healthcare, pharmacies, grocery. Um, kind of actually surprised me how much longer that they they left the list. The medical cannabis was uh, left on the list as an essential service, which is a very <laughs> Seattle thing to do to do, I imagine. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, all the restaurants. If they can do takeout, you can get food from a restaurant. But other than that, you're pretty much supposed to stay home. What are you, what are you doing to kind of help to kind of cope with the quarantine or social distancing? You know, to be honest, um, I am a little bit of a recluse to begin with. And so, uh, my wife and I, though, we have, our big thing was always sporting events. So we have season tickets for the Sounders, our soccer team here in Seattle and the Seahawks and the Mariners. We do a lot of games on the Mariners. And so not having sports is kind of like our big thing that um, was our social thing in the past. And so without it, it's just me and her just kind of hanging out watching TV. So it's <laughs> watching Netflix reruns of different shows. I, I don't know if you'll get there, but I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm streaming old sports games on YouTube to, <laughs> to, to give a little bit of a fix. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm almost there. I am definitely almost there. So, to kind of give everyone some baseline perspective, you know, just generally speaking in, in the University of Washington, like what's the ICU like in, in a typical flu season? You know, is it pretty busy, kind of filled with some, some pretty sick patients? Yeah, it's, it, it varies. We have three hospitals in our system. There's Harborview Medical Center is our county hospital, and it's run by the University of Washington for the county, though. And so they have a lot of, uh, you know, underserved populations. And so the flu season usually hits them pretty hard. Um, it also hits my unit really hard. Any respiratory virus in a neutropenic patient obviously is, is trouble. And so respiratory virus system always like slams us pretty hard. Um, our other units, we, cause so we're, our hospitals kind of, uh, all team based. So pharmacists are based on a team rather than a specific unit itself. And so, you know, CTICU, CCU doesn't see a ton of that, but the medical ICU, onc ICU sees a, sees a fair amount of flu and other respiratory viruses. Now, the, the first, you know, COVID-19 cases were diagnosed in Seattle in, in kind of late January. You know, when did you, when did you start to notice maybe like an uptick of patients, you know, being admitted to the hospital and to the ICU with those kind of symptoms? Was it around that time? Um, to, so I can't speak to our other hospitals because one of the things that they elected to do was put most of the initial patients at our hospital, University of Washington Northwest, which is a community hospital that they acquired, but it's mostly hospitalist based. And so there's fewer, you know, residents and fellows and things like that. Um, so it's fewer people that are 
taking care of the patients. And so we put most of them up there first. Um, we started seeing an influx of some more critically care ones less, I would say probably a week and a half ago. Um, so patients who required, for example, ECMO, they can't do that at Northwest Hospital. Um, and yeah. Is, is that also, does that also mean that the hospitals that they were initially going to may be full or is that more a sense of they needed the like more critical care that they can't provide at those type of hospitals exactly and that's yeah. that's what we we were seeing initially we're starting to see more uh patients up on the floor who are getting diagnosed that aren't as critically ill but i will say that um this thing can move scary fast People can go from, you know, two liters nasal cannula to prone, paralyzed, 100% and 18 to peep in hours. And so that's, that's the scary part of this one. One of the biggest issues I think that all of us are, are hearing and are, are acutely aware of is, is actually testing. So how are you all kind of running the tests? Are they send out? Are they, are they done on site? And I'm asking because I think Seattle was really at the forefront of doing a lot of this testing when, you know, nationally speaking, we weren't doing as much. Absolutely. No, I think we have an amazing virology lab and they were ready to roll instantly. Um, and they're processing upwards of, uh, I, I think they're at a thousand tests plus a day capability now and they're they, they have capability to do more is what i heard so um i think and that's a credit to to just our our virology lab here is just an amazing group we've been doing pcrs for a long time for respiratory viruses and they were ready to roll as soon as they as soon as they knew what to do now in terms of the process do you is it do you have to send like a confirmatory test or anything or, or is it able to be just kind of one test per patient? Initially it's one test per patient. Now there's, they are testing for two specific uh, genetic sequences. I can, I can't remember the ones, but if one's positive and one's negative, they'll send a confirmatory one to the CDC. If they're both positive, we call them positives. Now okay. we'll wait a couple more days and re, you know, if the symptoms subside and they're looking okay, we'll retest. But otherwise, we consider them positive if that first test is, is positive. And, and if the test is what we call inconclusive, if one, was, one of the genes was positive and one was negative, they'll um, still keep them on precautions as a rule out COVID and send, the, send it off to the CDC. So kind of building on what you hinted a little bit earlier about, about how quickly and acutely these patients can decompensate. Have you noticed any um, symptoms other than primary respiratory um, that, that patients are coming in or complaining of? You know, I haven't, to be honest. Uh, almost all of the ones that we've seen admitted are presenting with respiratory symptoms. Now, I have heard tales in the literature now of gastrointestinal symptoms being a potential as well with this virus, but I don't have any uh, direct experience with any patients that came in with that. Yeah, it would, it would seem that, you know, based on those SCCM guidelines that most of the ICU patients are, you know, presenting with though similarly to like severe ARDS and things like that. But I thought it was interesting that report talking about you know, anywhere from 30 to 40% of people presenting with GI symptoms, which I think is something mm -hmm. that 
you know, I didn't necessarily think of with all of this. I thought it was primarily, you know, think droplet airborne. I was thinking, you know, pure respiratory. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the classic is myalgias, fever, and uh, dry cough. Um, but now we're we're hearing about this respiratory stuff or the gastrointestinal things, and you know, we're, it kind of makes me wonder how many are we missing that are out in the community already. That you know, oh, I have a little diarrhea, or a little gastrointestinal pain. And we're missing them, you know, and that's why I think the testing thing is, is the key and, and being able to run a large number of tests on a lot of different patients and the fluidity with which this thing is moving. I mean, we're learning things, you know, sometimes hourly on how to manage these patients and, and how to, uh, you know, assess them. And so that's kind of the, the scary thing about it, to be honest. Yeah. The, we just don't know what's going to happen. And that's what, you know, I'm, I'm having to, I feel like constantly reiterate to people is like, you know, all we're doing is using the data that we have to predict what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, we don't really know, unfortunately, it's all based on testing and controlling, you know, what we can. Exactly. Now, what I've been reading and kind of been hearing um, is that, you know, obviously the risk of hospitalization or, or becoming critically ill is higher in two specific kind of subgroups. Those who are um, adults who are 60 and older with some specific comorbidities like, you know, diabetes, cardiac history, immunosuppression, um, with the risk being even higher in those who are 80 or above. Now, is that... Is that in line with the patient populations that you've seen and have been treating, or are you seeing something different? Um, being kind of the referral center for the more critically ill patients, we're kind of seeing like uh, we've seen more of the immunosuppressed, more of the elderly with severe comorbidities. Um, it's run the gamut, though. I mean, you can have like an 80-year-old who's, you know, they're just kind of camped out on a couple liters and do fine. Uh, but then you see somebody who's 50 who we don't know of any comorbidities and they end up on ECMO. And so this thing is just all over the place, to be honest, I think, with with how it can present in some patients. And the I think it's the CDC data who reported it. You know, they it's coming out that in the United States, the, the young are being more affected than is what is happening internationally. And I use the word young kind of... Um, I'm including patients who are just younger than 60 in that category, but I think it's important to note that while a lot of those elderly and the, you know, those above 80 are getting a lot of the concern, right? Someone walking around, you don't know if they're immunosuppressed, right? You don't know what's happening right. or in those types of things. And that's the, that's the scary thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think the whole message to, you know, stay social distancing, stay away you know and i'm standing on the corner waiting for the light to change i'm making sure i'm like six feet away from anybody else because you don't know who who might have it and uh, you know and who's going to really suffer from it if if they get it so so just generally speaking you know what's it like kind of being in the hospital right now with it kind of exploding you hear the term seattle's kind of turned into the hot one of the hot spots you know what's it like it's honestly, it's very eerie. It's eerily quiet. And it feels like the calm before the storm. The, um, you know, we, we banned pretty much all visitors. Patients who are eminently dying can have a couple of visitors. Um, people who need like a ride home or something can have a visitor. And they're all screened at the doors. 
we only allow entrance through a couple of doors and there's police at the doors, like not just our security guards. It's like the real popo, you know? So it's, it's a little surreal in the hospital because the hallways are pretty much empty except for staff. Um, we've, uh, stopped all pretty much all elective procedures except for some that would be considered essential and all, um, in-person clinic visits except for things that would be considered essential. And so it's, it's really quiet and it's really strange. I think all of us are going to remember kind of February and March as, as the kind of toilet paper months, right? All the supplies are running low. Everyone's hoarding things. You know, have you, you know, yeah, I went to the grocery store, you know, just yesterday to try to pick up things and boy, those shelves were, were bare. And so, you know, have, have you seen this also from the hospital side of things, whether it's medications, machines, or supplies, do you, do you feel like they're, um, you know, running lower kind of like, like the comparison of what the grocery stores are like right now? Definitely. Um, the PPE is the biggest thing, you know, the personal protective equipment is running scarce. We're doing so many things to limit the use of it right now. Um, the big concern is going to be the ventilators. If we really get slammed with this, um, Right now we're doing okay. We have bed space. We have, we converted several like kind of rooms to HVAC, you know, negative pressure HVAC rooms. Uh, but the PPE and the concern about if we, if we really see a big influx of patients in severe respiratory distress, um, that that's, that's really what's going to hurt. Now for those who may be less familiar, what PPE are, like the interdisciplinary team members who are interacting with those patients, what are they wearing? Like, what does that consist of? So currently we're using for, for patients who are not getting aerosolizing procedures. Um, so not getting like a bronchoscopy or getting nebs or things like that. We're using uh, droplet contact precautions. And so basically that's a mask with a face shield, gown and gloves, uh, and the, and, uh, for the airborne, we're using N95s, what we have left. Otherwise, we're using regular masks right now. The biggest thing that we're doing is limiting the number of people that go into the rooms. For a known positive patient, uh, it's strictly limited. And we have new, we have, uh, you know, protocols for our code, code blue and things like that uh, on how to limit the number of personnel in a room for something like that. Yeah, how has that affected kind of from a pharmacy perspective, you know, cause I think a lot of times if there's a code, right, we try to be in there. If someone, if, you know, if RSI is happening in front, like we're going to try to be there and helping, is it, is it, um, changed in the sense of now they're probably still helping, but just more outside of the room or what, how has that process right. kind of changed? So our policy now is that the pharmacist and most, a lot of the teams stay outside the room. The code cart stays outside the room. The defibrillator gets passed in. The pharmacist will get, because at our, I know every hospital is a little different how their pharmacists respond to codes, but our pharmacists pretty much run the code cart for a lot of like, not only the drugs, but a lot of the equipment too. And so we have these big gallon jug plastic bags that we bring with us to our code. And we have an auxiliary code box in case we need to mix something or need extra supplies. So anyway, we get these gallon plastic bags out of our auxiliary code box, loaded up with things that they need initially and pass it in. 
Um, but yeah, staying outside the room, uh, pretty much the entire code now, which is definitely different. And you mentioned the, the shortage of PPE and, you know, everywhere you look, I mean, you basically see doctors and healthcare professionals like basically begging to, to try to get, to try to get more supplies. So what all have you done to try to help save, or I guess you'd say maybe more ration some of this PPE that you have in stock? Yeah. Some of, one of the things that we did, um, you know, we are obviously limiting the number of people that go in the room helps with that. We did, um, our, our compounding pharmacy d- division at the university, um, is compounding their own sterile hand sanitizer. I don't, don't ask me how, what the recipe is. I haven't learned it yet, but I want to learn. Um, but yeah, so we're compounding our own hand sanitizer at this point. Um, we, I don't think they've gone to reusing masks yet, but I know that, uh, we've talked about it. We are reusing the PAPR hoods, the personal airway respiratory protectors. Um, they are reusing those and, and, and generally the nurse is kind of the primary person in the room using it. So. You know, making your own hand sanitizer sounds like we're going back to pharmacy lab where we made like chapstick and things, right? <laughs> like the lotions and all that. <laughs> I know. Like, and I would be lost. <laughs> yes. Yes. If you put us in that environment, I don't, I don't think anyone could be convinced that I was a pharmacist if I tried to go back into the compounding world. Exactly. Now, another idea I've seen to really help ration some of this PPE is trying to cut down the amount of times that a nurse enters the room um, with kind of some some unique strategies I've seen. Are you all kind of doing anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Basically, they're staying in there. We have um, wireless phones that they carry so they can communicate um, what they need. Definitely trying to limit the, the number of people on rounds. You know, usually one provider will go into the room to, to do the, the patient assessment. Um, just strictly limiting the number of exposures and the number of times that we have to use our PPE. Yeah, are, so are these like COVID-19 patients, whether suspected or confirmed, um, are they in like a, like a specialized kind of closed unit or are they more kind of scattered throughout the hospital in the various negative pressure rooms? So, so the, the stable patients that are up on the floor kind of scattered all over the place, um, that have turned positive, all our hospital is single rooms. Um, some are, some are negative pressure, some are not. Um, one of the things that we did though for, uh, the the sicker patients and for patients who look like their trajectory was going to make them sicker. Um, we converted our surgical intensive care unit is basically our COVID-19 unit now. And the SICU team uh, is taking care of those patients. And they all, they retrofitted some rooms. They took windows out, basically put a big plastic sheet up over the window and hooked an HVAC thing up to it that sucks the air out and blows it outside. And so they did that with a bunch of the rooms up in that unit. Um, kind of an interesting model, uh, but it's, it's kind of scary too. So it's, we did that with some of the units, um, some of the uh, rooms on the cardiac uh, critical care unit today. I saw the construction guys up there hooking all this stuff up. So, so we have a specialized, yeah. So we have one specialized unit, but anticipating the need that we might need more than just what they can provide. 
it sounds like from what you've described, you know, one of the big things is kind of limiting some of that face-to-face interactions, you know, um, especially with, um, you know, patients who may be waiting, you know, their test may be pending or Uh um, things like that. So that probably leads more to um, pharmacists being less decentralized, um, potentially, and maybe more centralized. But what all have you, have you done to help ensure that, patient care is still happening while you're kind of trying to keep everyone safe. So we haven't pulled the pharmacists off the teams. Um, Our pharmacists are all team-based rather than specifically area-based. And so, for example, my team, I round with an attending, a critical care fellow, and generally a nurse practitioner or a PA. We have, we don't take junior level uh, residents at this point, but, um, so it's a, it's a small team. So we still round, we still provide care with the patients, but you know, we maintain our social distance and generally only one person will go in the room if it's a suspected positive. Um, we have on the, some of the uh, services that cover maybe more floor patients, like the general cards on the floor or cardiac surge patients getting ready to discharge. We used to do all the discharge teaching, you know, in the room, hands on with the patient, uh, we're not doing that anymore. We're doing it from either the phone or having the nurse do it or doing it from the doorway in, in unusual circumstances. Um, and that's for all patients. That's not just for presumed presumed or um, uh, waiting for confirmation kind of patients. Um, we use, obviously, being the University of Washington, we have a lot of pharmacy students. All pharmacy students on rotation are now working from home. And so they're working up their patients from home. They're calling their preceptor at a designated time to kind of go through their patients and and recommendations. We're having them sometimes call the patients on the phone to do med reconciliation and things like that that pharmacy students do. Um, So a lot of changes uh, to the way we we practice in general. Yeah, and I I like that um, the the pharmacists are still on the teams, you know, I, I've seen on, on Twitter kind of the arguments, you know, for pulling some of the pharmacists away versus keeping them, keeping them rounding. I can, I can see both sides of things, but you know, when you, when you fight to be a, a member of the team and, and to be a valued member, when, when uh, something like this happens, it kind of feels like it should be, it should be all hands on deck, but I see the other side of, you don't want everyone falling. See, so, you know, I see both um, sides of it. Um, but I just my personal preference is kind of what what you all are are doing and handling it now. Yeah, I think you know we're really lucky at, in at UW Medicine to have a very collegial relationship with our with our physicians and our other providers, and I I don't think they let me get away with not rounding. So <laughs> now you you mentioned how creative you've gotten with the the student learners and, and things on rotations, but you know how has this affected pharmacy residency because uh, you know you're a you're a, an RPD I'm, I'm sure it's not business as usual um, currently just with everything happening um, you know with the residents honestly we try to let them be as independent as possible so for example I have a resident on service with me I'm not rounding I'm staying in my office looking at the patients from a distance but she's the one on rounds being the face of pharmacy for the team and then we meet afterwards. So we're trying to keep the residents as essential providers as well, because we really rely on them for a lot of service in the hospital. And, uh, you know, they obviously have their preceptors that's looking over their shoulder and, and helping out and making sure they're not missing anything. But 
at the same time, uh, we want them to get this experience too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, are most of these patients who um, end up coming in with um, these COVID-19 symptoms, you know, are a lot of these going to the ICU or they go into the general ward? Is it a mix? Like if you had to guesstimate, what what would you say kind of the split would be? Um, I would say it's a mix. I think we've had probably when I left today, I was trying to think we had about six patients in our COVID-19 unit, like ICU unit. Um, four of which were very severely ill, uh, one of which was on ECMO. The, um, the rest, I would say there's probably a, a scattered handful, maybe 15 or 20 throughout the hospital in the various wards. Um, so it really hasn't um, hit the unit as hard as I'm expecting it to in the coming weeks. Yeah, I, I saw an analogy that I thought kind of really stands clear is it's like, you know, when you have the tsunami wave, you know, when the water gets pulled up, there's a lot of bare sand before it crashes down. And it kind of feels like a lot of us are standing on the beach right now. And this kind of, yeah, this wave is just, it's making incremental, it's getting incrementally closer, closer to us. Um, Cause you're right. When you mentioned that it's eerie, that was, that was something that I've, that I've heard from other people is the census is actually in some areas down a little bit, kind of preparing for all of this. Absolutely. With the, with the cutout of the electric procedures and everything, we have open beds in a lot of our units and it's um, we want to kind of keep them that way until we really need them, I guess. Now, we'll kind of focus on, on the critical care kind of management or the patients here. And so when these patients, you know, present to, to the ICU, you know, just kind of generally speaking, you know, what is the, the typical critical care management? I mean, is it really just kind of like with severe ARDS, like all of those same principles or are you, are you doing anything else um, in regards to these patients other than kind of supportive care? I think it's primarily supportive care. Um, I think the realization that, of how rapidly this can go south, though, is leading to maybe earlier intubations, um, earlier proning and paralytics if needed, uh, and definitely ultra-low tidal volumes is what I've seen a lot of these patients getting. So uh, I think just, again, severe ARDS, supportive care, um, and then, you know, obviously some of the trial things that we're using. And um, the and this will be in the kind of the reference list for everybody. But you know, SCCM, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, you know, came out with some COVID nineteen guidelines. And when you look at kind of the summary of the recommendations, for the most part, it's very in line with what we're doing with a lot of those um, severe ARDS patients. Kind of the, you know, definitely limiting fluids as much as you can, fluid concentrating, and some of those some of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You, Early use of pressors potentially um, to use more of a fluid sparing approach is, is definitely something we've seen. Are you using a fair amount of corticosteroids on this patient? I know that's kind of a, 
I don't know if controversial are, is the right word, but um, yeah, um, we are not. We are not. I have yet to see a patient get corticosteroids. Um, I've had some colleagues who've used tocilizumab, the IL six blocker, mm-hmm. um, with the understanding that some of the forms that this can take is a severe cytokine release syndrome. And we have seen elevated, we check interleukin-6 levels in a lot of these patients. And we have seen IL-6 levels get elevated. Um, But the feeling is that corticosteroids would probably make this worse and would definitely Mm -hmm. lead them to have a longer course of the disease. And and this is something that we know of in, in my population, in the bone marrow transplant population, when we have to use corticosteroids uh, in patients with viral illnesses, it's, just a huge problem because they're going to get sicker. You know, what are your, have you seen, you know, I think the other big treatments are, you know, there was the, um, the extremely flawed paper kind of talking about azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine. Um, you know, are you seeing any type of, you know, you have all these other types of treatments. Have you really seen any of those used or has it really just been focusing on, you know, lung protective ventilation and those types of things? Uh, no, we are using hydroxychloroquine in our patients now. Um, I, I can't say that I've seen a lot of azithromycin. I think most of the focus has been on the hydroxychloroquine. Um, and then most of the severest patients also, we, we get them into the remsivitator trial. That's, that's what I, I was going to ask that. Yeah. Have you, have you requested, um, the, have you had to go through the compassionate use process for remdesivir? Although they, they just completely changed all of that now. And I think you're enrolling in a study, but did you have to go through It's an actual study now. Yeah. The first patient or two that we had, I think was around we're on compassionate use, but now it's an actual trial and our, we have a big investigational drug service that's working with that at all of our hospitals. Um, that's enrolling the, the more severe patients on that trial. So have you in using, and we'll kind of focus on the two, the two treatments that you talked about, um, the remdesivir and kind of the hydroxychloroquine, have you seen any type of adverse effects or things that, you know, the listeners and things should keep an eye out for when using some of these meds? Well, I personally have not. And, you know, the hydroxychloroquine has been pretty well tolerated, even in our less symptomatic patients. It's hard to sort out right now, too, with the remdesivir, because you do see LFT abnormalities with it, but that may be also due to the coronavirus. And so um, it's, it's hard to sort it out until we really get the data for it. And so, I, you know, our, our ID guys are, are recommending hydroxychloroquine and then, and then pushing people into the remdesivir trial for the really critically ill. So I imagine most of these patients are, are being, at least initially, kind of covered for bacterial pneumonia. Um, you know, have you seen any type of co-infections in any of these patients, either viral or bacterial? Um, no, not specifically, but we, we've had a couple of patients, one that was initially a flu A that ended up coming down with COVID. Um, and the other one, you know, you just, you just treat them like you would any other ICU patient. If, you know, they're, they're on supportive care for their ARDS, then they start spiking more fevers and looking more cytokiney, um, then treat them with, uh, with antibiotics. Cause it's hard to sort out when you get the imaging on these guys. I mean, they have you know, ground glass opacities everywhere on their x-rays and, and their CTs. And it's really hard to sort out like, Oh, could this be a bacterial pneumonia hiding in there? And certainly could be. 
from the from the photos of CTs I've I've seen it it passes what I like to call the pharmacist litmus test, which means if, <laughs> if I'm looking at a radiographic image and know something is wrong, something is definitely wrong, and that's I that's I agree. I've used that <laughs> I've I've used that analogy all the time with my <laughs> residents. I'm like, okay, look at this. Can you tell us something's wrong? Okay, yeah. Then it's then it's probably really bad. Now, one of the you know. University of Washington has been absolutely incredible with not only um, some of their research and some of their, like you mentioned, the testing, but also making these resources publicly available. You know, they have a website that is um, a shared, it's a shared live document that's always being updated, but you all have like your treatment protocols and things listed, which is, you know, we'll have this link for everyone to, to go visit, um, but it's absolutely a, a treasure trove of resources. Um, and I bring that up because under the treatment, you know, they have a general treatment protocol there. You know, would you say that it's at this point, most things are happening on a patient-specific decision or is it more kind of at the, just based on the number of patients you've seen that now it's more of like an algorithm type of approach? I would say it's still more patient specific at this point. You know, if we really get slammed where, you know, we have so many, it might have to go to more algorithm based, but I think everybody is um, kind of treating everybody individually, you know, decision to put on ECMO, the decision to, to, to prone, uh, inhaled epoprostenol is another thing that we're using a fair amount of. Um, it's all basically patient care based, specific patient care based uh, on how they're clinically doing. Now, we, we mentioned a little bit earlier that they, you know, they've kind of closed the, the schools and things. And have you, have you seen any negative effects from that in the hospital? And I'm asking it from this perspective because obviously when you close all of the schools, you have a lot of frontline staff, pharmacists, nurses, and even physicians who now may not have as much opportunity to be at the hospital, at the bedside, taking care of these patients. Have you seen that or are there things in place that have, that have helped with that? Well, and, and that's where I would say, again, the university of Washington has really stepped up and they have a whole host of resources. Now me specifically not having children, just the furry kind. Um, I haven't had to go through these resources thoroughly, but they have a lot of resources for uh, childcare availability for a lot of our frontline providers and they've made those available. Now, what have you been doing to try to, to follow social distancing while working in the hospital? Because there are times, you know, you walk through and you, you would pay for six feet of space around you sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it can be really hard. I think everybody is so focused on it now that you don't have to worry about, you know, everybody kind of waves from a distance. Oh, Hey, nice to see you again. Um, you know, I saw, I, 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 I'm wondering if they brought him out of retirement, but one of our respiratory therapists today, I haven't seen him in probably six or seven years was on the unit today. And I'm like, Ahmed, I haven't seen you in years. And he's just like, ways I'm like, yep, just keep him busy. So, <laughs> you know, it's, um, I think we're all kind of in tune to it. Not having the visitors, um, really helps with that. Uh, you know, there's still some times when, you know, obviously I, I was like, kind of eyeballing the CCU team today as they were rounding right outside my, my unit. Um, and they were all kind of grumped together and like, geez, you guys need to like span out a little bit more, but, uh, you know, I, I think most of us have, have kind of taken that to heart. 
Now, every, I mean, our knowledge on COVID-19, like you mentioned, is changing by the hour. So, I mean, like what resources are you using and kind of what are you doing to keep up? Because I don't even have a job right now and I feel like I'm drowning in COVID-19 information. Yeah, it comes fast and furious. And, um, you know, the university has been really good. We have, you know, obviously our external site, um, but we also have internal sites for a lot of different things too that um, move a little bit more rapidly. We also have, you know, tracking for positive patients in the hospital, where they are, what their status currently is, and what the trajectory is kind of looking like um, using our EMR. And so it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of resources internal that the, the university, and I think, you know, having the kind of the machinery of a big university is a big advantage in this setting. I think the, the concern I have is some of the smaller programs, uh, smaller hospitals that are out there that don't have access to all this. And I think that's why, um, UW Medicine did a great job in like making everything available. You know, I've certainly been all my, I have former residents all over the country and, uh, you know, they, they're texting me, can you send me this? Can you send me that? And, um, so, so we're sharing as much information as humanly possible, I think at this point. And that's, that's, that's a big thing too, is just being in communication with your, with your peers around the country, uh, cause they may not have all the resources you have. When you when you try to see the positive sides of side of things, it is in times of crisis where you really see the pharmacy family come together and everyone really help each other out. I think it's been evident with with everything that's been happening with all this. And so, I mean, hearing all of that, that's 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 awesome. Really, um, really speaks, I think, to to the character of, of pharmacists and kind of what we're doing. Absolutely. I think, you know, I always joke with my residents that pharmacy is a very, very small world. <laughs> so if you, if you piss somebody off, <laughs> it's going to get around it. Right. And so, um, but it is a small world on the good side too, in that we, we all care for each other. And I think we all have a, a respect for our jobs and what we do and want to help each other succeed. So it sounds like though, um, kind of going back to the resources, it sounds like you know, are you trying to keep up with the articles or things as they published, or are you kind of um, stepping back and really just utilizing kind of the expert guidance from like UW and like the ID team and things like that? I do both. Um, I, I certainly review our internal stuff, our internal guidance, and what what, what we're they're promoting. Uh, but you know, PubMed right now, their front page, you can access pretty much everything that's coming out about this. Uh, right on the front page. And so I always eyeball that every day, like, see, is there something new that may be of interest to me to review? Um, a lot of it's all so early that we, you know, it's it, it's not necessarily great science at this point, but um, still some interesting ideas that are coming out. You know, I've heard some people uh, talking about the, the mechanism of action that their mechanism of entry of the virus is using the ACE2 receptor and some people talking about using Giapresa or our patients on ACE or ARBs at higher risk. You know, some of these kind of pharmacy specific uh, questions are certainly interesting, but don't have anywhere near the level of data to, to really comment on it. Now, just as I reached out to you when all of this was happening, I imagine that you are the point person for a large amount of people who have questions about COVID-19 so 
I'm going to call this kind of, we'll call this the family and friends segment. Or is there any common misconceptions or questions that you would like to either kind of address in this setting? Well, I'd really like to encourage my dad who's 80 and has some health conditions to stay the hell home. Uh, my, my half sister is telling me he was out at Home Depot the other day and I'm like, I don't know. I, I would just, that's what I've really been stressing to my family and my friends is stay home. Just stay home. Avoid other people as much as you can. Um, flatten the curve. You know, I think most people are, are familiar with that phrase now. Uh, and, and, and try to keep your social distancing uh, even if you, if you do have to go out. Wash your hands a lot. And so I just, just kind of the common sense things because we, we don't know how bad this is going to get yet. Mm-hmm. It hasn't really, I mean, it looks like New York's getting slammed a lot harder than we are right now. Um, and that may be due to the fact that, you know, it's a much more population dense area, um, maybe different demographics and things like that. But um, they're getting really slammed. And you look at what happened in Italy and they're absolutely slammed. And so it looks like Spain's getting 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 tr- in trouble too. And so I, I think as long as we can, and I try to stress that with my family and friends as much, and like through social media, to maybe my friends who aren't as is uh, savvy in the medical world, you know, hey, this is really important. You really need to listen to them when they tell you to do this. And I think something that uh, may be frustrating with it is if the social distancing actually works, right, we're going to feel like there are going to be some people who treat it as, look, nothing happened. Why did we stay in? Where it's like, that is a result of the social distancing that we did. So there's not going to be an immediate kind of benefit um, from this. And you mentioned, you mentioned your dad. I think, I think the the older generation, ironically, is having a harder time with the social distancing than the younger one. That's what I've through my family and friends. That's kind of what I've what I've gathered as well. Yeah, no, I would I would agree with that. I think uh, you know I, I'm 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 a Gen Xer. We were we were raised to be you know socially distant, <laughs> um, and I think you know the 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 millennials. You know they 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 operate online pretty much, right? So. I think they're probably more comfortable with it. I, I would say though that it's still um, maybe the elderly, older population needs that social contact at some point. And so I would say, you know, reach out to your family and your and and, and just call them and see how they're doing and just make some contact that way. Um, and if they need any help, you know, you can arrange to get help for them. I, I would certainly encourage that that kind of uh, social contact. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, you know, if you had to, um, you know, reemphasize any specific points that you've kind of mentioned throughout when thinking about either preparing for kind of caring for these patients, what would be some of the highlights that you would, you would have people really try to remember from, uh, this podcast for, you know, and again, this changes somewhat, you know, hourly, if not daily, but the big thing for us as pharmacists to remember, um, look at our PPE users. Are there any other ways to limit it? You know, we use glove boxes in our ICU satellite. Do we really need to have our technicians, you know, double gloved and masked and, you know, all of that? Um, look at um, specific medications that may run low. I don't think we have the full story on a lot of these, but, you know, when I first started seeing some of these reports, I told our purchasing guys, you know, stock up on some hydroxychloroquine because I think this might 
be something and stock up on some tocilizumab. I haven't seen personally any use of it yet. Um, but I, I told them that those may be things that are coming. And so, um, just trying to stay ahead of it as best you can is going to be the most important thing. Look at ways in the hospital to limit the number of people that are there. If you can, um, telework if possible. Most of our IT department is all teleworking from home now. Um, our refill authorization center, which is all run by pharmacists, is, is doing most of their, their stuff by telework. And so I would say um, limiting contact with other people, uh, conserving your PPEs, and keeping an eye on the literature to see what may be coming. Well, let's end on a, on a little bit of a, a lighter note. I think at, at this point, most of us, hopefully, are, are hand-washing experts. So when you're doing the 20-second scrub, do you find yourself humming or singing any songs in your head? You know, it's funny. I was doing the happy birthday thing for a while, but I got really sick of it. So I just started counting down. I do a 10-second <laughs> countdown and then another 10-second countdown because I'm like, you know, I, I know like there, I've seen some people saying that there are playlists out there. I'd like to see some of the good ones. Do you have any that are, uh, that are your favorites? I got a couple here. I got a couple options here too. Um, we have some oldies, some, some new stuff. So, um, the chorus from take me home country roads by John Denver, that is 22 oh. seconds. Um, okay. Africa by Toto. That chorus oh, I love is that song. 22 <laughs> seconds. That's exactly right. Um, that first verse from Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye, that is 24 okay. seconds. And then the last one uh, for, for the young guns listening, it is uh, Truth Hurts by Lizzo. That chorus is uh, 23 seconds. So a little right. longer than 20 seconds, but we're pharmacists. I think a lot of us are a little, we overachieve in a sense. So I, I figured a couple extra scrubs wouldn't, wouldn't hurt. No, my hands are pretty torched already today. So. <laughs> Well, Andrew, I, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to, to come on here. I, I can't imagine how um, busy and how chaotic everything is. So we really, really appreciate it. I think there's going to be a lot of people who listen um, both in the healthcare field and, and maybe not in, in healthcare who um, hopefully take some of these messages to heart. So I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Nick. I really appreciate talking to you. All right. Thanks again. Bye. I've been working with Andrew over the past two to three weeks to try and come on, and that was great, even better than I than I anticipated. I was hoping for our conversation to be more focused on a personal perspective of what it's like being in one of the cities that is a hotspot for COVID nineteen. You know what changes he's had to make, um, what his hospital and health system have been doing. Um, and hopefully for some areas that haven't seen this or things, you may be able to get some ideas from our discussion as to things you can you can do and implement to help, you know, make yourself, the other pharmacy staff, all those things as, as safe as possible. Since our initial discussions, other places have had cases shoot up, um, most notably uh, New York State. Uh, things are changing around COVID-19 every day, if not every hour. So once we have some definitive data, some well-designed clinical trials, I'll certainly have someone on to do more of a deep dive into treatment, discussing the literature and things like that. But it just seemed premature at this point because in a week, everything we know about the treatment could change. That's not, it's a little less likely, but, um, 
I wanted it to be more of a, of a narrative type of episode, and that's, that's why um, the flow is kind of the way it is. Now, I read and I continue to read stories where everyone is emphasizing to support your local independent businesses and restaurants in your cities, and I'd like to echo that message. Take out gift cards, merchandise, whatever you can do, I know will be greatly appreciated um, for all of our favorite independent businesses, you know, your favorite local coffee shop, your little brunch place, your corner nook, um, the place you go to get a cocktail, all those things, you know, they're hurting. And so if you, if, if you can, definitely continue to try to support them. But don't forget about your local newspaper, journalists, writers, magazines. Um, times like these need really good independent reporting and writing. And as this continues and even afterwards, we'll certainly continue needing them. So strongest recommendation to please get a new subscription. Everyone's going to have a little more time on their hands. Let's read a little bit more. Um, I also want to highlight some newspapers or magazines that have their COVID-19 content available for free. Well, the, at least the, the most important stories available for free to all readers. So be sure to bookmark these sites, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, and the New Yorker. Those are the four that stand out to me as creating really good content. You know, their stories have been incredibly eye-opening and helpful as we understand how to deal with our new life in this in this pandemic environment. Now, a quick reminder that we have our our listeners bracket still accepting votes. You remember we want to we want to try to crown the best medication in critical care. Um, so if you want to vote, it's the listeners bracket. We want the listeners to have a to have a voice. And things are heating up here. You know the Sweet Sixteen into the finals is there's going to be a lot of um, competitive and very fifty fifty matchups. So go to our Twitter page. It's at Pharmacy to Dose T O to Dose, um, and we we also have released a three-part episode where we have four amazing bracketologists, and, and they are uh, Matt Robertus, Josiah Smith, Brian Gilbert, Melanie Smith, and they were an absolute blast to do all that with, and you know they're dissecting the four regions and ultimately picking their winner of the critical care medication March Madness bracket. Um, and so like I've said, if you need a little levity, you want to have a little bit of humor. You want to try to relive sports. You know, I'm at the point where I'm watching YouTube channels, so um, or YouTube games. So you know, I have a need. I'm sure there's others there. Um, but we'll get back to our um, bi-weekly on Wednesday release schedule here soon. I thought that this episode was too important to wait to release, so we'll we'll get back to a normal release schedule soon. I know everyone's going to have a little more free time on their hands. So if you have any requests for episodes, guests, or content, let me know. Um, and then likewise, obviously, if you have any feedback, either positive or negative, um, please always reach out. Uh, either, you know, pharmacy to dose on social media or pharmacy to dose at gmail.com if you want to shoot me an email. And I said it in the episode, but I want to say it again. You know, it's times like these where we're able to see how strong the pharmacy family is, the critical care family. From the interactions I've seen on various listservs, social media, even email, it's as strong as ever. We're going to get through this together. Um, love you guys. And I'm going to keep working on 
creating a reference list for some of this COVID-19 content. I'm still figuring out the best way to do that since all of this is really a living, breathing document, right? Everything's changing by the moment, um, but should have something by the end of this week. Um, so thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.